Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Come Follow Me Insights with Book of Mormon Central. Today, Alma 43 to 52. And there's a lot here to talk about. I know sometimes people skip over all these war chapters. As a kid, it was kind of my favorite thing to read about. Not totally. But we hope that as you get into these chapters, you'll avail yourself of the extra valuable resources that we've put into our Scripture Plus study app to help make more sense and help dive you deeper into understanding the Scriptures that have been preserved for us. Wonderful. Now, many of you are probably wondering why so much war in the Book of Mormon. You have to understand that Mormon, the chief abridger, was called to be the chief captain of the Nephite armies starting in his 16th year, so when he's 15, and his whole life is surrounded by warfare. So he's seeing symbolisms and connections to our life all over the place in battles and in strategies and in warfare. Here's the reality. He didn't just see his own day with war, he saw our day, and he saw the various battles and the struggles that we face today, uh, not just against the powers of the, of the devil and the powers of darkness, but against all kinds of issues in our world today. So, consequently, he's saying, I'm writing this for you down the road. This will help you because whether you like it or not, we are at war today. If you turn over to the Bible, the very last book of the Bible, the, the Revelation of John, if you go to chapter 12 and look at the heading, it tells you that John sees the imminent apostasy of the church, and then towards the end of that heading, chapter summary, it says, John sees the war in heaven and he sees the continuation of that war on the earth. We are fighting an extension of a war you already fought in and won, technically. We overcame with the power of the Savior and fighting with Michael the archangel. We fought in that war and won the first time, but now the battleground has shifted. Now we're on the earth. We're fighting against the same people as we fought against up there. Only problem is, is we can't see them so clearly. So I love the fact that the Book of Mormon helps us have a lens wherewith we can see the enemy very clearly. Uh, it, some of you who really, really don't like war or violence, but totally fine, but you'll come to the war chapters and think, ah, oh, it's so painful to read these. If you just shift the focus from looking at the, the struggles as a physical thing and say, wait a minute, this is a spiritual thing for me. This becomes a handbook for my battlefield against the powers of the devil and against the, the struggles of mortality and look for principles that can be applied. It won't take away the battle. It won't take away the war or the struggles that you're facing, but it empowers you to be able to go into those with more purpose and more power, uh, knowing the enemy better. Uh, and by the way, you can't be neutral. You have to fight. The reality is, is we didn't start this war with the devil up in heaven nor on the earth. We don't like it, but we have to fight. We have to defend ourselves and our liberty as well as those around us. Keep in mind, the whole foundation of Satan's war in heaven and war here on the earth that he wages is to seek to destroy the agency of God's children. That's what he's trying to do. The war is over agency. Some other words that tie into agency, liberty, freedom. Those are the things Satan is attacking. So, let's jump in. Chapter 43, our first little mini war segment in 43 and 44 is going to occur, and then there's a little interlude in 45, and then the full-blown war chapters really get underway in chapter 46 through 62, 
and then the, the summation in 63 finishes off our book of Alma. So let's start this way. Since we're looking at our war that we're fighting being simply a lens, the, the, this book becomes a lens through which we can see our own struggles, let's look at the pre-mortal realm again, this war that we already fought in where you had the two who stepped forward when the Father asked, whom shall I send? Here am I, send me, and the glory be thine forever. Here am I, send me, and the glory be mine forever, seeking to destroy the agency of, of all of God's children being that underlying motive. Watch carefully as we pick up the story now in verse 7. See what you can see about our own struggle back then as well as today. Now this he did, this is uh, Zarahemna, the leader of the Lamanite army. He, he called Amalekites and Zoramites to be the leaders of his soldiers, and he did that to preserve their hatred towards the Nephites, that he might bring them into subjection to the accomplishment of his designs. For behold, his designs were to stir up the Lamanites to anger against the Nephites. This he did that he might usurp great power over them, and also that he might gain power over the Nephites by bringing them into bondage. That's the opposite of liberty and freedom and agency, seeking to destroy the agency of God's children. That's exactly what Zarahemna and the Lamanite army are trying to do. Let's go and subject the Nephites. Now look at the contrast. Look at verse 9, because Mormon is going to show you light right next to darkness, good right next to evil on the page many, many times. Look at verse 9. Now the design of the Nephites was to support their lands and their houses and their wives and their children, that they might preserve them from the hands of their enemies, and also that they might preserve their rights and their privileges, yea, and also their liberty, that they might worship God according to their desires. So in this struggle that's starting up, one is trying to take it away and another is trying to defend it. So now let's watch this as Mormon now sets the stage for this first clash of these two armies, look at the description of how Captain Moroni, who is a type of Christ, is preparing his soldiers, and you can picture how Christ would have prepared the angels in heaven in that particular conflict. Look at verse 19, or the bottom of verse 18. He's given them swords, scimitars, all manner of weapons of war, and then verse 19, when the armies of the Lamanites saw that the people of Nephi, or that Moroni, had prepared his people with breastplates and with arm shields and with shields to defend their heads, and also they were dressed with thick clothing. You'll notice here, Captain Moroni has prepared his men with both offensive and defensive weaponry and protections. Look at the contrast, verse 20, how does Zarahemna feel about his men? What's the unwritten? An unspoken message to his men. Now, the army of Zarahemna was not prepared with any such thing. They had only their swords and their scimitars, their bows and their arrows and their stones and their slings, and they were naked, save it were a skin which was girded about their loins, yea, all were naked, save it were the Zoramites and the Amalekites. Notice you've got this huge army that more than doubles the number of the Nephite army, and you give them all this offensive weaponry, things that are instruments that can kill. And what do you give them for defense? Can you picture this long line? Line up, come through soldiers, and they get a government-issued loincloth. That's all they have for their defense. In contrast to what Captain Moroni gave his men, thick clothing and the breastplates and the arm shields and the helmets for their head, God sees people differently than Satan sees people. Satan's soldiers are there to destroy in order for him to get power, whereas Captain Moroni cares, actually cares about his men, so he's going to defend them. I love this moment when you've got this huge Lamanite army looking at this less than half the size Nephite army, and these guys are the ones shaking in their boots, you know, getting weak in the knee, saying, uh, let's not go fight them, as they look up and down the line at all of this bare skin that's exposed, and they see all of the armor over there. 
brothers and sisters, when we follow Christ, when we defend liberty, when we're, we're using our agency and when we are prepared, we shall not fear. Even if it seems that we're vastly outnumbered, it's them who live in a realm of fear. They're the ones who are filled with the, the shaking and uh, we're not fighting, so they retreat back into the wilderness. And if you look at the map, the internal map, they've been positioned down here in Antionum, and Captain Roni's men were in Nephiha here, and they've come together and they say, nope, we're not fighting, so they back off and take the slower, rougher route through the wilderness to try to get over here to Manti to enter in, whereas Captain Moroni finds out from the prophet Alma where they're going and quickly comes over and hides his men in the uh, near the, the city of Manti, and thus we're in place for the battle that's going to take place in chapter 44 when they come. Look at verse 30 in chapter 43. And he also, knowing that it was the only desire of the Nephites to preserve their lands and their liberty and their church, therefore he thought it no sin that he should defend them by stratagem. Therefore he found by his spies which course the Lamanites were to take. And then you combine verse 30 with verse 49, and it came to pass that they turned upon the Lamanites and they cried with one voice unto the Lord their God for their liberty and their freedom from bondage. And they began to stand against the Lamanites with power. And in that selfsame hour that they cried unto the Lord for their freedom, the Lamanites began to flee before them. They recognize my arm, my armor, my best thinking, my best strategies, they're not going to save me at the end of the day. It's important. I have to have that in place because now I can go to God with more confidence, but the battle is the Lord's at the end of the day. And they turn to him, and then in chapter 44 you get this beautiful sequence where Moroni is he doesn't delight in the shedding of blood. He's not sitting there going, kill him, let's, let's be violent. He hates that part. He recognizes it as a, as a necessary evil, if you will, to be able to defend the liberty of the people, but he hates the fact that he's having to kill people to do this. So he stops the battle, has a little interaction where he asks Zarahemna to reconsider this war, and Zarahemna refuses, he gives him the weapon, but says, I'm not going to promise I'll never come and fight again, and you get this intriguing sequence here where he rushes at Moroni to try to kill him. The servant of Moroni stops him, breaks his sword, cuts off his scalp, <laughs> raises it up, at which point many of Zarahemna's men say, okay, we're done, we're done, but the rest keep fighting, and he has them keep fighting until he realizes, okay, I am going to die, okay, stop. Does that tell you how he feels about his men? This wasn't about them. It was about him and the other leaders getting power over the Nephites. It's a tragedy that so many lives have to be lost because of one man or a, a few people's uh, thirst for power and their greed and their pride. So as Zarahemna's army retreats and goes home, down to the land of Nephi, or up to the land of Nephi as they would say it, uh, chapter 45 is this little uh, interim chapter because 46, we're going to have major struggles start up again, this time among the Nephites themselves. As we're about to move into 46, we want to look at this transition verse 24. And this is actually a problem that's going among the Nephites. Now, the Nephites are the ones who apparently have the gospel. They should know better, right? And if we really look carefully, most of the war chapters we're looking at, the conflict is driven by Nephites who refuse to live the truths they've been taught. It's uh, Zoramites, uh, Amalekites, kingmen, and what seems to be the common factor here? Verse 24, they grew proud being lifted up in their hearts because of their exceedingly great riches Therefore, they grew rich in their own eyes and would not give heed to their words, to the words of Helaman and his brothers who were teaching the words of truth, to walk uprightly before God. People often misunderstand. There's this false teaching called the prosperity gospel. The gospel will make us prosperous, 
but one of the core meanings of prospering, as we've seen in the past, is to have God's presence. Now, God will and can bless us with the finer things of life, but those things are not evidence that God's presence is in your life. And if we use those things as replacements for God's presence, we begin to think we're better than other people, and we end up hurting others. We use the riches that God's given us to make ourselves better than others, to not serve them, to not give to them, to not bless their lives. And we've looked at this before, but it bears repeating. This word pride is actually related etymologically to this word, first. Actually, see the connections there. People who want to put themselves first, it can lead to pride. And when we put ourselves first, we are no longer ministering or making ourselves less than others so that we can help them. Ministering. I wish there were spell check here. I don't know if I spell that correctly, but I think you get the point. The problem is pride. When we put ourselves first instead of God first, when we let God's blessings make us think that we are better than others, and unfortunately, this leads to terrible trauma throughout the Book of Mormon. And why Mormon preserves this is so that we today can look clear-eyed at all the things God has given us and ask ourselves, was it given so that I could try to say I'm better than everybody else and be first and foremost in front? Or is it so that I can bless others and help more people experience liberty, to help more people get out of bondage, to use my means to serve, love, and bless the lives of other people? Now, we enter this new phase. You'll notice that the names are going to change, but the lens that we're looking – so while we shift out the lenses, we're still looking at the same thing. We're still looking at attributes of the devil and attributes of Christ. So it used to be Zarahemna that we saw elements of the devil, and now it shifts to Amalekiah in chapter 46 because of pride. Look at what happens in verse 4. And Amalekiah was desirous to be a king. Does that sound familiar to Lucifer in the premortal council? Desirous to be king, and those people who were wroth were also desirous that he should be their king. And they were the greater part of them, the lower judges of the land, and they were seeking for power. The motivating force is this pride. They wanted power. They wanted to be first. It wasn't enough for them to be joint heirs with Christ. They wanted to they wanted to have it alone. They wanted to be first. So, we were talking about this before. The word Amalekiah – so, we've mentioned before that in Hebrew, the underlying word Melech means king. So, there's been proposals about what Amalekiah's name means in Hebrew, and it seems to do with kingship. And it's interesting, there seems to be an underlying wordplay going on in the Book of Mormon. If we could translate this back into the original languages, that it says he desires to be a king, right? So, Amalekiah wants to be a melech. And this I-A-H comes from the word Jehovah. Yahweh. And we have names like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And Mosiah. And Mosiah. Well, all have to do with Jehovah. And I've heard some proposals. Now, again, we're not totally sure, but this is interesting. That Amalekiah's name might mean, I rule as Jehovah. This is what Tyler's talking about. That's what the devil wants. He wants to cut Jehovah completely out. And if that name happens to be correct of what Amalekiah means, Amalekiah is a prototype for the kind of people we should totally avoid and spend our lives standing against. Because only Jesus is Jehovah, and Amalekiah, if we look at what he tries to do, he wants to fully dominate everybody and not have anybody have the liberty to worship the real Jehovah. Look at verse 5. And they had been led by the flatteries of Amalekiah that if they would support him and establish him to be their king, that he would make them rulers over the people. So, he gets all of these dissenters. Look at verse 7. And there were many in the church who believed in the flattering words of Amalekiah. Therefore, they dissented. 
So even what the scriptures might refer to as some of the very elect give in to the flattering lies and the, the failed promises for you'll be powerful. Look at verse 8. Mormon jumps in with one of his famous thus we sees. Thus we see how quick the children of men do forget the Lord their God, yea, how quick to do iniquity and to be led away by the evil one. Verse 9, yea, and we also see the great wickedness one very wicked man can cause to take place among the children of men. So Amalekiah, again, is simply a type or a lens or a viewpoint through which we can see the devil revealed for what he's really trying to do. Now, he goes about trying to do all these things, and in contrast, what did we say again and again? Mormon's going to put the light next to the darkness, the, the evil side by side with the good, because then it makes it easier to distinguish the two and see what's going on. So he's given you the bad side in chapter 46, those first ten verses. Now watch as he shifts to the good side. Captain Moroni, who is our type of Christ, it came to pass, verse 12, that he rent his coat and he took a piece thereof and he wrote upon it, in memory of our God, our religion, and freedom, and our peace, and our wives, and our children, and he fastened it upon the end of a pole, and he's going to call it the title of liberty. Now, look at this. On this title of liberty, this rent piece of cloak, this coat of his, he's going to write some things. Let me make it a little longer for our list. In memory of our God, our religion, our freedom, and by the way, pay close attention to the order and what relationship these elements that Captain Moroni is using, what they have relationship-wise to each other. In memory of our God, our religion, our freedom, our peace, our wives, and our children. So I'll make it a, a big cloak to fit it on. What do you notice? Hmm. If you put God first in your life, President Ezra Taft Benson said, then he will help you put everything else in its proper order, in its proper place in your life, and he said, and some things will fall out of your life altogether. Elder Maxwell said, if in the end you haven't put God in the first place, it really won't matter what you put in his place in the end. That first place belongs to God and nothing or no one else. Notice that if you have God in the right place, the very next thing you get is religion. Religion isn't the way the world talks about this, this organized religion and organizations that sometimes are filled with struggles and problems and bad behaviors of certain leaders at times in history. Religion at its root, at its core, is a significant word. Re to reconnect, it's to, to connect us or bind us to God. Let me put in there real quick. Um, other words that you know are ligament, right? Ligaments are what connect things. So religion is binding yourself into relationship with God and other people. It's not simply about rituals and a set of creeds, although those things matter. It's about the covenantal connections and the obligations. In fact, the word obligation, Obligate. I just realized, Lig. comes from the same word. The obligations we have to God and to others. That God wants you to reconnect with him. That's what the atonement of Jesus Christ is all about, is to provide the means whereby we can reconnect. So I put God first, he's going to give me a connecting point to him. With that connecting point comes true freedom. This is one of the biggest lies of the devil of all time, which is, wow, commandments and covenantal obligations, those are binding, those are, those are bringing you down into senseless and useless bondage. Be free. Use age. The devil would teach us the doctrine of consequence-free liberty. 
Liberty, do whatever you want with no consequences attached. That's his doctrine. God, knowing all things, says, if you truly want to be free, then I'm going to give you commandments, I'm going to give you the handbook for how to use agency appropriately on a covenant path that's bringing you closer and closer and closer to becoming more like me, that's freedom. That's agency. That's liberty. You could just as – Captain Murai could have just as easily labeled this, this whole flag that he made out of his coat. He could have titled it the title of agency or the title of freedom. He happened to call it the title of liberty. It's all the same thing. You want more freedom. Elder Christofferson said, learn as many of God's laws as you can and keep them. That's freedom, which flies in the face of the devil's doctrine today. Once you have freedom that comes through a connection with God, then and only then will you experience enduring joy and lasting peace, peace that only the Lord can give us through a, a life well lived. And notice then, now you get these family connections, wives and children. Brothers and sisters, look at that ordered list. I don't think for a minute that Captain Moroni ripped his coat in a moment of anger and said, huh, I gotta get these people riled up to fight, so what can, let me just come up with some random things that are worth fighting for. Okay, let's just write them down in a random order. I think he was very purposeful and quite frankly very inspired because to me these are dominoes. If you turn your back on God, it's just a matter of time before you're going to lose any sense of religion. And once you've lost those two things, it's just a matter of time before you lose freedom. And once you've lost that, you will lose this, and eventually you're going to lose this and this. So, he holds this title of liberty up, and in verse 13 is where he gives it the title of the title of liberty, and all of these people come. They're believers in Christ. Keep in mind, we're at 73 BC, roughly. This is beautiful because you don't find this in the Old Testament, this, this BC Christianity like you do in the Book of Mormon. They're keeping the law of Moses, but boy, they are they are laser-focused on the cause of Christ. And so now the people come running. Look at verse 21. came to pass that when Moroni had proclaimed these words, behold, the people came running together with their armor girded about their loins, rending their garments in token or as a covenant that they would not forsake the Lord their God. Or in other words, if they should transgress the commandments of God or fall into transgression and be ashamed to take upon them the name of Christ, the Lord should rend them even as they had rent their garments. In antiquity, when you make a covenantal agreement, when you, when you promise to do something, there's always a token of that covenant to some degree or another. And so in antiquity, you'll often hear the phrase, cutting a covenant something has to be cut. And in this case, they come running up and they rip their clothes, their, you can picture this rending of their garment as they say, count me in, I'm with you, Moroni, and then they'll take their clothing in the next verse and they throw their garments down at the feet of Moroni. War is war's ugly. War is painful. It hurts. You can picture what it might be like after three weeks in the campaign, out sleeping in tents, going from place to place, and being, you know, you're getting hit and injured and maybe wounds all over your body, and you wake up one morning and maybe the bread is moldy for breakfast, and you're thinking, life was so much easier back at home, I, I'm done, I'm leaving, and you go to put your shirt on and you pull it over, and what do you notice? This little rip, and you say, oh, yeah, I promised. I made a covenant, and I can't break the covenant, even though now it's really, really hard, and I don't know why it has to be so hard, but it is, but I'm not going back on my covenant. Brothers and sisters, God invites us into a covenantal relationship with him, and we cut those covenants in different ways symbolically. It's not a physical thing. 
It's a sign to our God to say, I'm taking this seriously, and I'm going to promise that I'm going to do this, and we make that promise because we know that down the road it's going to get really hard, and we need to be reminded of the serious nature of that promise. And I love this little segment in here of where they're promising to do really hard things, not having any idea just how hard those things are going to be to fulfill and to stay faithful to the end. Okay, on to chapter 47. Captain Moroni has raised this title of liberty among the Nephites. He's got all of these uh, people to come and fight for these causes and to push back the, the efforts of Amalickiah to become the king of the Nephites. So when Amalickiah realizes he can't become the king of the Nephites, his next plan is, well, then I'll go down and become the king of the Lamanites and then eventually use them to take over the Nephite throne, right? So he escapes, goes down, plays really nice with the king of the Lamanites, gets him to think that Amalickiah has the king's best interest in mind, and uh, then he gets him all ready to send his armies to go fight the Nephites, but most of the army doesn't want to. So they're led by a man by the name of Lahontai, and Lahontai takes those soldiers who don't want to fight to the hill Antipas, uh, to a place called Oneida, and says, no, we're not going to go fight the Nephites. So the king gives Amalickiah charge of the loyal uh, soldiers in his army, and they go and they camp at the base of this mount. And thus begins one of the saddest sequences in the entire Book of Mormon. Look closely at the wording in verse 6 regarding Lahontai and his men. They had appointed a man to be a king and a leader over them, being fixed in their minds with a determined resolution that they would not be subjected to go against the Nephites. Pretty powerful language. Fixed in their minds, determined resolution. We are not going to go fight the Nephites. So we're up on this hill, and so what does Amalickiah do? Verse 10, he sent a secret embassy up to the top of the mount to speak to Lahontai and say, come down to the foot of the mount and talk to us. That didn't work. He says, no way. Attempt number one didn't work. So what do you do if you're, if you're playing the role of a devil-like figure? Well, verse 11, it came to pass that when Lahontai received the message, he durst not go down to the foot of the mount, and it came to pass that Amalickiah sent again the second time, desiring him to come down. And it came to pass that Lahontai would not, and he sent again the third time, Persistence is one of the attributes of the devil. You just keep trying to tempt people to do things that will bring them into bondage, ultimately. Well, that didn't work. Verse 12, it came to pass that when Amalickiah found that he could not get Lahontai to come down off from the mount, he went up into the mount, nearly to Lahontai's camp, and he sent again the fourth time. So now, Amalickiah moves up with a small group of men just outside of his camp, and he sends in a guy for the fourth time, or a group, to say, come out, Lahontai, don't be afraid. You can even bring your guards with you if you'd like to protect you. Come out and negotiate with us. And he does. And they come up with a plan, and it doesn't strike anybody as odd or strange when you get to verse 18 that after they've come down and surrounded and they've created this pact, that verse 18 comes, and it came to pass that Amalickiah caused that one of his servants should administer poison by degrees to Lahontai that he died. That's what happens when we give in to the lies of the devil, to the temptations of the devil. Something dies. It doesn't, doesn't mean that it's a permanent death like it might be in this case for Lahontai physically. So then we come back with the whole army under Amalickiah's command. The king comes out. Amalickiah has one of his servants stab the king and his servants flee, the king's servants flee, so Amalickiah calls, look, his own servants killed him, let's go and tell the poor queen. So he consoles the queen and gets her to feel confident and comfortable with him and marries her, and now Amalickiah is the king of a much bigger nation than that which he had sought in the first place, the, the king, to be the king of the Nephites. Brothers and sisters, there's a principle here. When is enough enough? 
when do you have enough money? When do you have enough power, enough recognition, enough glory? Well, when is enough enough? Instead of sitting back and enjoying the Lamanite throne and kingship, he can't rest. Amalekiah can't sit there and just enjoy his newfound throne. He has to keep trying to get the Nephite throne. So, look at chapter 48. It says, verse 3, therefore he had accomplished his design, for he had hardened the hearts of the Lamanites, blinded their minds, and stirred them up to anger. That sounds a lot like the devil. Hardened hearts, blinded minds, stirred up to anger. That's exactly what the devil's trying to do with, with everyone, right? So he's, look at verse 7, it came to pass that while Amalekiah had thus been obtaining power by fraud and deceit, Moroni, on the other hand, had been preparing the minds of the people to be faithful unto the Lord their God. Oh, I love the contrast that Mormon keeps putting in our face over and over and over again to show Jesus versus Satan and how they, how they carry forth their, their efforts. Then in this chapter, 48, Mormon pauses to give us a description of Moroni, Captain Moroni. Look at verse 11. Moroni was a strong and a mighty man, had perfect understanding, didn't delight in bloodshed, a man who sold did joy in the liberty and in the freedom of his country and his brethren from bondage and slavery. Sounds like a pretty good description of what Christ's whole life was all about. And it, his heart swelled with thanksgiving to his God for the many privileges and blessings which he had bestowed. And he had also sworn with an oath to defend his people. And finally, at the end of this, Mormon just finishes it by saying in verse 17, Yea, verily, verily, I say unto you, if all men had been and were and ever would be like unto Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. I love that. I love that whole page of scripture right there, page 329 in our English Book of Mormon, because that's what I want to be more like. And Captain Moroni is showing me an example of how I can also try to, to become a symbol for Christ in the way I live my life, become a true man of God. Now, turn the page over, chapter 49. This is where uh, the, the battle really gets ugly because Amalekiah is now on the Lamanite throne, and he is angry and bitter, and he wants that Nephite throne, he wants those Nephites to become his servants, his slaves more than anything. Look at verse 6. Now the leaders of the Lamanites had supposed, because of the greatness of their numbers, yea, they supposed that they should be privileged to come upon them as they had hitherto done, yea, and they had also prepared themselves with shields and with breastplates, and they had also prepared themselves with garments of skin, very thick garments to cover their nakedness. My goodness. The devil learns from his past failures here in this context using the, these, these armies of the Lamanites, Last time they showed up for war, they're huge in numbers, but they're only wearing loinskins. This time, he says, last time they had the advantage over us because of their personal protective armor and clothing. So, this much larger Lamanite army compared to the Nephite army is now armed the same as they. Now we've got them, and Amalekiah sends them off to battle. The problem is, Look at verse 10. Now, if King Amalickiah had come down out of the land of Nephi at the head of his army, perhaps he would have caused the Lamanites to have attacked the Nephites of the city of Ammonihah, for behold, he did not care for the blood of his people. Let's just say it. He doesn't care. They're not really his people anyway. They're just pawns for him. They're minions for him to be able to accomplish his own designs. Because what's happened? He sent them up to Ammonihah. Do you remember what happened last time a Lamanite army went to Ammonihah? Back in Alma chapter 16? They wiped out the city in one day. It's kind of up on the north. And so he's like, hey, go up there. But he didn't go with them. And they came out and they noticed that Captain Moroni doesn't just have the personal armor on his soldiers, but now he's taken the cities and he's built mounds of dirt 
with trenches in front all the way around to make them more defensible. And they're like, oh no, our personal armor isn't helping us much when they've got the high ground and we've, we've got this low ground trench that we're going to have to work through. This is awful. So they back into the wilderness and say, hmm, what are we going to do? Ammonihah fell easily last time. It's not falling today. And the chief captains of that Lamanite army said, let's take an oath that we're going to go to Noah, the city of Noah, and we'll attack that city regardless of what it looks like. That's a silly oath to take, by the way. Unfortunately for them, Noah was more defended than Ammonihah had been. But they made the oath. We've given our word. So off they go to fight. This is the single worst battle, as far as ratio is concerned, in the entire Book of Mormon. Chapter 49, verse 23. Thus the Nephites had all power over their enemies, and thus the Lamanites did attempt to destroy the Nephites until their chief captains were all slain, yea, and more than a thousand of the Lamanites were slain. While on the other hand, there was not a single soul of the Nephites which was slain. Over a thousand to zero. Worst battle ever. These guys come home, this army comes home back to the land of Nephi, and you can picture – so we need to pause here. We're no longer just talking about uh, random numbers and people. These are real human beings who aren't coming home, over a thousand of them. Can you picture the Lamanite families, the wives, the children, the mothers, the fathers, the grandmas and grandpas watching the army come home and looking for their loved one? and he's not there, and they ask somebody, hey, where's so-and-so, and they're like, he's never coming home. These are real people, and they went to fight a war for one guy, for his purposes, and they're never coming home. You would expect that one guy to say, oh, my people, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry that happened, but here's what they got instead. Look at verse 26. It came to pass that he was exceedingly angry with his people because he, had not obtained his desire over the Nephites. He had not subjected them to the yoke of bondage. Yea, he was exceedingly wroth, and he did curse God and also Moroni, swearing with an oath that he would drink his blood, and this because Moroni had kept the commandments of God in preparing for the safety of his people. Brothers and sisters, you don't need to be afraid of what the devil claims to be able to do. Don't fear the devil. Have faith in God trust Christ, follow Jesus, and then you don't need to worry about all of the rash oaths and, and promises that the, the devil and his followers are making concerning you. Just stick with Christ. So this time, chapter 50, uh, you'll notice that Captain Moroni realizes this isn't going away. They're going to keep coming, and they now know about this kind of fortification. So chapter 50, what does he do? He builds a big uh, – look at verse 2 – upon the tops of these ridges of earth he caused that there should be timbers to the height of a man. And then in verse 3, you're going to put a frame of pickets. And then on verse 4, towers erected to overlook the pickets. Captain Moroni is not going to fall to these Lamanites. The real problem here is not the Lamanites. The real problem turns out to be Nephites dissenters from within, the kingmen. So as Moroni is doing all of these fortifications and then look at verse 11, he's fortifying the line between the Nephites and the Lamanites. He's doing all of this and you'll notice verse 23, behold, there never was a happier time among the people of Nephi since the days of Nephi than in the days of Moroni, yea, even at this time in the twenty and first year of the reign of the judges. Principle? You can be surrounded by war. You can be surrounded by awful, horrible things happening, and you can still find happiness. There was never a happier time. Captain Moroni, with this title of liberty list of, of things, the people are happier than they've ever been. That's interesting commentary that for me implies, Tyler, you don't need to wait for your life to be perfect to be happy. You can find happiness even in the midst of intense opposition and trials and struggles, like these people did in verse 23. Now, 
there's some internal struggles between Morianton and Lehi over over here on the uh, east coast of the the land of Zarahemla. And then in chapter 51, you get the the kingmen rising up and they lose the vote. And so what do they do? They start a war. And Captain Moroni has to pull his men out of the strong fortifications to fight an internal war, a civil war, which now leaves all of our eastern seashore, all of those cities on the east, vulnerable and open because they don't have enough men to defend the fortifications, as well as the ones on the south, because we're now fighting a war in the center of the land. At which point, Amalekiah says, let's go. So he takes the men that are uh, in his army and look at chapter 51, verse 26. Thus he went on taking possession of many cities, the city of Nephiha, the city of Lehi, the city of Morianton, the city of Omner, the city of Gid, and the city of Mulech. And we already talked about the geography uh, elements going on here and bountiful in our little special segment that we did back with Alma 22 on Book of Mormon geography. So you can refer back to that for the rest of this story. I love the fact that Tiancum is able to come in to this uh, conflict before Amalekiah's men are able to take the city of Bountiful and the land Bountiful, which would have put a chokehold on the Nephites to be surrounded on the north, the east, and the south. Uh, so Tiancum has this incredible fight with the, the Lamanite army with Amalekiah, and notice verse 33. Think about what time of the year this is. And it came to pass that when night had come, Teancum and his servants stole forth and went out by night and went into the camp of Amalekiah. And behold, sleep had overpowered them because of their much fatigue, which was caused by the labors and the heat of the day. You think, oh, well, this is clearly summertime. The Book of Mormon people are not using a Gregorian calendar like we do, January through December. They have their own uh, calendar system. When is their calendar flipping to the new year? We don't know for sure, but it looks like it's sometime around the spring equinox because of what happens in 3rd Nephi 8. It tells us that on the first month, fifth day of that first month of this new year, this huge tempest and storm and earthquake and all of these horrible destructions kick in at the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, we know that Jesus is crucified either on Passover or the day, you know, one day from Passover. Passover is the first full moon after the spring equinox every year. So we know that the Nephite calendar, at least in 3rd Nephi, is flipping over sometime in the spring. Here it is, much heat of the day, and watch what happens. Tiancum goes, puts the javelin in his heart. Taylor, what do you notice in chapter 52, verse 1? What I love is that Mormon regularly says, and other Book of Mormon authors, hey, I don't have a lot of space to record things. So why would Mormon take the time to give us a chronological, chronological detail when we don't have their calendar? And what does it say here? So, so Amalekiah gets executed or killed by Tiancum at night. Came to pass in the 26th year, I'm in chapter 52, verse 1, came to pass in the 26th year, the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi. Behold, when the Lamanites awoke on the first morning of the first month, behold, they found Amalekiah was dead in his own tent, and they also saw Tiancum was ready to give them battle on that day. And they were frightened. They ran away. Now, it's New Year's Day for these guys. Most of us read this and don't pay attention. This is the Lamanite-Nephite New Year Day. Well, what do we do? We make goals about eating better and losing weight, and it's fireworks, and we sing some crazy song at midnight, which I still don't even understand where it came from. But it may be, in, in ancient biblical cultures, New Year's Day was the day that the king was supposed to come out in all of his fullness of glory and engage in prodigious feats of strength and stamina to demonstrate his virility and power to rule for another year as a sign of the prosperity that would come upon all the people for the next full year. Nothing could be more damaging psychologically to the people than to have their king dead on New Year's Day. It would be a terrible sign that they would have an entire year of death and destruction. So not only was Tiancum very strategically smart to execute the king, but he did it at a 
propitious time, a very important time, to make a psychological warfare against the Lamanites, this will be your fate, just like your king. Your new year is a year of damage, death, and destruction. To, to bring this to a closure, we have lost this entire eastern seafront, sea all of these fortified cities. They're not just little villages. These are strongly fortified cities. We've lost them all. Rather than throwing his hands up in the air and saying, <clears throat> I give up. This is too hard. I have lost too much ground. I've spent so much time in chapters 43 through 51 doing everything I can to defend myself against the powers of darkness entering in and becoming a part of me in a symbolic state for us today using these war chapters as a field guide, a handbook for me in my battles. We spend all this time trying to keep sin and addictions and evil out, and all of a sudden in 51, it's not just in, but it's rooted in me if I'm looking at myself as a symbolic uh, uh, version of the land of Zarahemla. It's now become a part of me. Rather than throwing my hands up in the air and saying, I give up, it's too hard, I'm not fighting anymore, this has gone, I've lost too much ground, it's, it's irreparable damage at this point. Captain Moroni didn't do that. Lehi, Tiancum, they didn't do that. They said, hmm, we've lost a lot of ground because of that internal struggle with the kingmen. What are we going to do? They didn't try to take back all of the cities at once. What did they focus on? Mulek. How do we get back Mulek? It's the farthest north. And they focused on Mulek until at the end of chapter 52, we've retaken that one city, and it's beautiful. And now, for the rest of the war chapters, we're going to get a handbook, a field guide for you and me on what do we do to truly repent, to truly become cleansed from evil, from iniquity, from sin, from addiction, in whatever form all of those things have taken root in our soul. There are some amazing principles in 53 through 63 of how to focus on one city at a time and take them back one city at a time until we reclaim that land. There are a million ways you can read the war chapters, or the whole Book of Mormon for that matter. There are a million different angles you can take in looking at these principles and doctrines. We've, we've shown you just a couple today as we've gone through this lesson, but in closing, I want to give my assurance that if you put God first in your life, he will give you a true connection with him, true religion. He will give you true freedom, true peace, and he will give you a foundation whereon we can establish meaningful and eternal lasting relationships with family. And at the end of the day, though it might look like the enemy is outnumbering us, my assurance is that if you're in that list of the title of liberty, they that be with us are more than they that be with them, and you will come off conquer in the end. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.